Sometimes life feels out of our control. We get stuck in trauma, old patterns, and change feels out of reach. Sometimes it feels like fate. We want to help you break out of old, unhelpful patterns and become healthier. We're fate resilience, taking control of the outcome. With licensed therapists, Jennifer Oxford, Taylor Madsen, Haley Mayer. Welcome back. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> For those of you just want, listening to us back to back, go touch some grass. Yeah, I love that phrase. <laughs> go touch some grass. There was like, I'm allergic. I don't do it. That's like a new, <laughs> it's like a new phrase a bunch of the kids are saying nowadays. They're like, go touch grass. And it means like, you don't take get care out of enough. yourself. It yeah. sounds like you should go, like, F yourself. Like, that's what it I sounds like to me. Sound hostile to you. I'm like, and then we become <laughs> E for explicit. Just <laughs> e for, instead of E for everyone. <laughs> okay, so back to where we were. So today we're going to talk about something really fun. Anxiety. anxiety. Oh, we almost got it at the same time. It was that almost. Was fun. That we, we were just anxious enough not to. <laughs> But if our mic stands don't fall, this will be a great cut. (laughs) What? uh, Well, where do we want to start with anxiety? Anxiety means that there's a potential threat. Our brain is just letting us know that there is a threat. I think it's important to realize that anxiety covers a lot of ground. And while we're not going to get to all of it, we want to touch on several really important things. So one is that we can have anxiety in the moment where there's a perceived real threat and we can have anxiety as a emotional response, but it is also a physical response. And that's the part that I want to make sure that you understand is this is not just a anxiety, something you can turn off and on once it's triggered in your body, that your body will process the anxiety and it, and it has to go through that process to recover and get to baseline. Yeah. Everything that you see, hear, smell, taste, or touch goes through the emotional part of the brain first before we have a thought about it and the most primal emotion is going to be anxiety or fear we'll we'll cover fear next time but so that we can know whether there's a threat or not and so there really isn't a distinction between an emotion or uh, our body they're the Mm -hmm. same our body's trying to keep us safe i like to think of it as like a especially i think triggers are often associated with anxiety right and that's a big buzzword we like to use nowadays is I'm triggered I'm this and that's usually like my body is having an anxious reaction right now right due to perceived threat due to these things I talk about it as being the check engine light for the brain right it's not a bad thing I think we always and it's also important to say like anxiety is not bad okay like extreme anxiety over a long period of time long duration that's when it's unhealthy but anxiety itself is not a bad thing. Um, it shouldn't be perceived as automatically it needs to be this awful thing because honestly, like without feeling a little anxious, you're not going to get your home done, right? You want to get things done, but you're doing it in a small enough dose and a healthy dose. It, the, the part where it becomes a check engine light is that when we leave it on for too long, we know with a check engine light, you have a certain amount of time to get things looked at. There's something that's starting to become wrong or something that the system has just detected And it should turn on with enough time to be like, okay, you can get to a shop, right? But when we leave that check engine light on for so long, that's when bigger issues develop. But then also you have some people, I remember someone in college, he was like, I just turned it off because like, I looked, there wasn't really anything there. So I just, I just, you know, I cover it up. I don't really look at it. And I was like, 
Man, to have that kind of confidence. Yeah, I was up in Idaho. So, I mean, he must have really thought he knew what he was doing. He, that kind of idea with anxiety as well, it's just one of those things where no wonder it's going to get this huge, you know, bad rap is because no one knows how to appropriately use the anxiety or like manage it in a way that it doesn't become this monster eventually, right? I, I think that's really important because anxiety is, it needs attention. It's not something you can just ignore, but you, most people want to ignore it. And we want to differentiate anxiety. Everyone experiences it, even our friends in Idaho. Yeah. <laughs> but everyone experiences them. anxiety to different levels. And, every, and then the managing of anxiety is about checking in with yourself Anxiety disorders can be diagnosed when your anxiety is interfering with your daily life. Mm -hmm. Chronic anxiety is something that you can experience that has long-term effects and is affecting, again, the level of your daily life. And so I think it's really important that we look at that and say too much or too little is not the is not the right way to really talk about the right way to really talk about anxiety, but really to say to what level is my anxiety interfering with my life. Mm -hmm. And you can have the same amount of anxiety and learn to manage it and move forward. Yeah. Yeah. That line for disorder, like Jen was talking about is, can I uh, do what I need to at work? Am I completing and functioning at school? Am I able to maintain my relationships? If one of those areas is impacted, then that's where we're looking at maybe what's called a disorder. A disorder is just a shorthand for a cluster of symptoms Mm -hmm. or that it's interfering with one or more areas of life. Persistence in that, yeah. Yeah, and I think it's, it's good to acknowledge too, like when we talk about anxiety, that not, I, I like how you guys are mentioning the disorder part because not every person who's anxious has an anxiety disorder right? Not every person who gets, you know, a high worry about something automatically says, oh, well, I have an anxiety disorder. And I think that's back to like people going, oh, I'm bipolar. Oh, I'm this. Oh, I'm, you know, the self-diagnosing extreme. Mm -hmm. And so for us, like, I think it's really important to show like everyone kind of like what I say with every other, you know, whether we're talking about a drama triangle, whether we're talking about depression or whatever, everyone goes through anxiety. Everyone has it. Okay. That's okay. Like we were saying, it's a natural thing. And so we don't need to diagnose ourselves into having like this generalized anxiety disorder or bigger than that. Um, if we are validating the fact we have anxiety, we can just validate the fact of I can feel anxiety and I don't need to have it be validated by a larger diagnosis to make it real. Some of the things that contribute to anxiety Um, aren't just our own past, but our ancestors. Mm -hmm. Um, So we all have DNA. If you don't know what that is, you're either too young to be listening to this or... Dolly the sheep, man. Everyone knows Dolly the sheep. (laughs) Some people might be too young for that, in which case I have feelings about you. (laughs) Uh, Are they anxious, (laughs) Phil? I'm anxious for your your, uh, future. I'm going to just maybe not answer that question. (laughs) Uh, On top of our DNA... Are on top of our genetics are called epigenetics. They're markers on top of our DNA that let our descendants know if we have children that, uh, hey, you should maybe be ready for a famine or, mm-hmm. hey, maybe you should be ready for the English to come and murder everyone, which is probably everyone in the entire world. Mm-hmm. So like, let's just look at people in the United States. 
um, if you're Native American, everyone that is Native American has a history of genocide and displacement and sexual violence in their history because of their treatment by the United States government. Let's look at Black people. Again, genocide, brutality, enslavement, sexual violence. Uh, let's look at Mormon pioneers chased from state to state. <laughs> um, let's look at Jewish people, uh, the Holocaust, anti-Semitism. Mm -hmm. Being born into these populations, you have a genetic history of uh, DNA being primed with these markers that say, hey, life is going to be rough. There's threats out there. You should just be ready for these threats. Mm -hmm. And so there are higher rates of anxiety and depression among these populations because of the history. Mm -hmm. In uh, bacteria samples, we found uh, epigenetic markers lasting for 40, 000, or 40 generations. In mice, I think it was six plus generations. And in humans, we're finding evidence around that six generation mark. So if you're huh. looking at six generations, in my family history, six generations goes back to the early 1800s. So look at the United States, just United States history, like mm -hmm. don't even look at European, Africa, any continent's history. Yeah. And that is a lot of violence that people will have survived. Yeah. I think on top of that, in your experience, after you're born, you're experiencing what we call secondary trauma, which means that your limbic system, the part of you that regulates and feels the anxiety and tells you whether there is a threat or not, it interacts with the other limbic systems around you. So your parents' anxiety level, the other kids around you, um, work environment, school environments, all of those things will affect how you perceive and respond to threats. And that's before we ever talk about what was modeled as far as how to manage anxiety. And the really cool part about that is that epigenetics uh, can be healed. Uh, those genetic markers can go away. And so that phrase that trauma passes through a family until someone's ready to feel it and heal it is absolutely true. Mm -hmm. And so while we all have epigenetic markers, uh, doing the work in therapy will heal those epigenetic markers so that they're not passed on to the next generation, which is incredible. Yeah. That is, it's so powerful. And it's one of the reasons that when we do work that works with both sides of the brain, like EMDR, we find that the response is I'm trying to think of the right word here, not prolific, like all encompassing about, kind of that. Yeah. Word. Okay. That it's that, that, that it, it heals both the, the conscious and the unconscious. Along with unconscious, you, we were talking earlier about there being a present anxiety and future anxiety, like a potential threat in the moment and ahead. Anxiety about the past really trips me up. And I've noticed it trips clients up of like, oh my God, like we were just chatting before starting the podcast about, no, don't tell me that's a thing because then that means I had that thing in my yeah. past. <laughs> I don't remember what we were talking about, but then when clients realize like, oh, that wasn't okay that I went through that. And then they realize that there was a threat in their past. We yeah. experience anxiety around that. Mm -hmm. I think it's interesting when we look at to the way anxiety shows up in our culture, culture being a very broad term and what are appropriate or acceptable ways for people to process anxiety and not. Mm -hmm. Right. So we talk about anxiety and we look at it was very acceptable. I grew up in a culture where it wasn't acceptable to drink caffeine, smoke, all of those things, but it was very acceptable to eat. And so eating became one of the ways that I comforted and calmed myself for a long time until I started learning that that was that was not a healthy way to process those emotions. Mm -hmm. And so when we look at 
you know, I would have said as a kid, I, not as a kid, as an adult, I would have said I wasn't anxious or early in my adulthood. But I realize now that I was just masking anxiety through, you know, one of the behaviors that I chose. And when I look at other people that say that they're not anxious, that's often true is they're masking that anxiety mm-hmm. versus processing it. Yeah. I grew up, but I was like a highly anxious kid. I processed it often just by, I mean, I, for the most part, we call it dissociation a little bit where you just completely like pretend like nothing's wrong and you just kind of mask it. And it's, I definitely had at times like some blunted affect and things like that. And I don't think to the point of it was really noticeable, but I noticed it that like I could present all these feelings, but I wasn't really feeling it inside because I knew that the minute I did, there would be a lot of anxiety that would probably come out with it. And so there's a lot of ways that we handle that anxiety. I know I have, you know, my family history includes a lot of different types of addiction histories and things like that. Like that's another big thing that when you look at it, I think a lot of it came from anxiety and different things like that. Um, Especially like, you know, looking at different socioeconomic levels, anxiety was not talked about back in like the 1800s, the early 1900s as something like, oh, you have anxiety, let's work through it. It was usually like, you can't handle the stress. Okay, then you obviously aren't prepared for this, you know? And so anxiety is, it isn't until recently we're starting to say like, hey, it's okay to feel a little anxious. Again, it's that warning bulb that's going off, but what are you gonna do with that? In the past, it was like, oh, you feel anxious? You're incompetent, right? And we have a tablet, 3000 year old tablet from Mesopotamia that talks about soldiers returning from war experiencing mental health symptoms. So this is not a new thing that people are experiencing by any means. No. Yeah. So it's, it's definitely interesting to see now today's world, how we are approaching that and identifying like with eating issues, with drug alcohol issues, with, you know, even just issues of being around others socially. Right. Um, I've noticed, especially with my teens that I'm working with now and my young adults, the anxiety levels are much higher because especially with COVID and like being secluded from others, they didn't have that chance to work through that anxiety as much. It was like, well, we're all kind of suffering, so we just need to get through it. Right. And it, I'm noticing just this lack of being able to sit with that discomfort of the anxiety. And also knowing that it needs to be fixed, not just like pushed away. And so it's very interesting seeing we didn't go through a war per se, but with like a global crisis like that, you're seeing a lot of the same presentation of lack of being able to look into that more and sit with it. One of the things too, to be really aware of when it comes to how kids learn to manage their emotions is as they do a lot of co-regulating with the adults around them and with the pandemic, adults didn't have the skills to regulate for a pandemic. We had never gone through Mm -hmm. a shutdown of our culture on that level. And so Mm -hmm. we couldn't have possibly taught our kids how to manage that anxiety for themselves Mm -hmm. and with regulating emotions healthy regulation comes from somebody who can match the emotions and then show you how to calm it down. What we were having was a lot of adults who were matching and or exceeding because we had fears, adults had fears around the economy and, you know, the larger world, 
the, the macro world versus the micro world that kids live in. And when we were going through that, our anxiety might've even been higher than our kids. So we couldn't necessarily help them regulate that. And especially at first, and they didn't have any place to go and see anyone else. And so we're going to see some, a lot of fallout from Mm. the way that anxiety was experienced and processed or not processed. Yeah. That matching for regulation is so important because where we generally go wrong is we try to meet someone's anxiety or fill in the blank with the emotion with logic. We shouldn't feel anxious. There's nothing to be worried about. Mm -hmm. Instead of meeting it with empathy of like, oh, that makes sense that you're worried, you know, trying to put ourselves in their shoes. And the emotional brain will only understand someone else's emotional brain. So if we don't match that feeling without exceeding it, like you were saying, Jen, the emotional brain won't feel understood and it won't regulate. One of the things you can do with anxiety is actually if you're noticing your own anxiety or even noticing someone else's anxiety is to name it that, you know, and, and naming it, I, in, in therapy, I always like, wow, that's really stressful or wow. There's a lot of worry there. Mm -hmm. Right. And so it's not always the word anxiety. And I try and match it with facial expressions, with posture. Um, But a lot of it is just gaze being able to hold that is where um, empathy happens with the matching. And then I really slow down my own breath because what we know is that because we feel it in our limbic system, one of the most powerful ways to move through it is to start to breathe, engage the prefrontal cortex so the information can move between the emotional brain Mm -hmm. where it's being experienced and the rational brain where we can start to problem solve. And that's a very slow process. I think a lot of people want that to happen in one to five sentences when really the truth is that the average person it takes up to 45 minutes to regulate that back to a baseline and that's without an anxiety disorder that 45 minutes is very particular because when any feeling um usually it's anxiety hits a certain level that we can't tolerate adrenaline cortisol are released into the bloodstream and epinephrine Mm -hmm. and norepinephrine in the brain And it takes 45 minutes minimum to be filtered out by the kidneys. And that's only if we stop producing those things. Yeah. Right. That's when the threat ends, not when it started. And so, or the perceived threat, one of the, one of the two. And so I think it's really important to understand and name it as quickly as you can to start to regulate it. Mm -hmm. The other thing we have to do sometimes is remove it. And Mm -hmm. that, that sometimes means removing ourselves. Yeah. From a situation. I think it's also important to just recognize the fact of that removal does not mean you are, you've lost, right? Quote unquote, like lost the situation. It just means you're acknowledging the fact that you need a space and a break to recenter yourself. Um, we kind of touched into it, but just the idea of like, what do you do once you recognize you have the anxiety? I think the first thing is knowing what anxiety feels like to you. I think you have to recognize what does my anxiety feel like, right? Where do I feel to my body? Like, I know I get anxious when my shoulders start feeling really tense. I start feeling this like kind of feeling of nausea kind of in my upper chest, the bottom of my throat, right? Sometimes my stomach starts feeling that there's like a rock in it. I can recognize that. So that when those feelings start coming up, it's not just like, oh, I'm just overreacting. I just automatically like, oh, I have some anxiety right now, right? This is what's going on. And then you kind of need to have like a a plan of action, not in the sense of get rid of it, but know what's the next step after you recognize it. I want to add to what Haley said, because it's really powerful to be able to recognize your anxiety. And often 
we start by recognizing it on a scale of zero to 10 at like mm-hmm. an eight, nine or 10. The goal would be to start recognizing it at a four. Yeah. Because at a four, we have a lot more control. Mm-hmm. There's less of the neurotoxins that are going through your body at that point. And so understand this, start with what does it feel like at an eight, nine or 10? Yeah, we catch neurotoxins at the TSA screening instead of after they've hijacked the plane. Correct. <laughs> very, very good. And um, back to world phenomenon. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I think that that's a, I mean, that's one of the main goals when most of my clients come in without realizing that's their goal. They come in saying, I have anxiety. And I'm like, oh, cool. And they're like, can we get rid of it? I'm like, no, but we can help you recognize it when it's earlier. So that way you're you're, you're coming in in preparatory mode rather than in I'm in crisis because it's there. Well, how are we going to be like Jesus if we still have anxiety? I know that's just hard. Jesus didn't have anxiety. I don't know if that's true. <laughs> I think that Jesus also had a limbic system yes. just like the rest of us. And he had anxiety. I think that's why um, he mourned Lazarus passing. He, all the experiences of emotion required that he also must have had anxiety. Is there a particular moment in the New Testament that stands out to any of us that he had anxiety with? Like the tables in the temple. I think I would have been anxious if I walked in the temple and I'm like, it's rage, but it's also this anxiety of like, oh my gosh, you're so much worse than I thought. Well, but just look at that. That's a fight, fight, freeze. I will act Mm -hmm. right now. This does not feel safe to me. Yeah. Um, I would also say that before he goes into Gethsemane, it talks about how he was very much not like himself. Well, he's like, also like, don't fall asleep on me. Don't leave me. And yeah. the guys are like, oh, we won't. And then they do. So yeah, then he got done what he was doing. He's like, fine, just go to bed. <laughs> I also think of just times where when he was on the boat and he fell asleep. And I think of the exhaustion that anxiety creates, right? And then the anxiety that was around him and experiencing the limbic system again of other people. Had a lot of work to do in a short amount of time. That's a unique amount of exhaustion to fall asleep in a fishing dinghy in the middle of a storm. That definitely. I, I want to add one of the things that I really like from the context of, and I'll come from the context of Christianity, but just in this idea of spirituality as well, mm-hmm. is that with anxiety, it is not sin induced. It's not a sign that you are not worthy or spiritual enough or somehow not something that it is part of your limbic system. It's part of the physical experience of the body. And that because it is not just an emotional state and is physical, it requires sometimes physical interventions Mm -hmm. for some people. And it includes this idea that again, for Christians, that the resurrection is what heals some of those trauma experiences, not just praying it away. I think it's also important to this idea of you can go through all of the things you need to do. We've talked about recognizing there's different deep breathing you can do. There's different writing exercises. I mean, honestly, there's everything. We call it basic DBT skills. Most of the time it's the mindfulness skills. You're being able to connect yourself with your body, with your mind, making sure you're all in the same place. Try not to think too much in the future or in the past. You're in the now. Am I a threat now? What's going on? But you can do all those things. And I think it's especially important to remember back to what we were saying about the the different chemicals in the brain. You still might need a little help. It's okay to admit that I have done everything and it's not working. And that doesn't mean that I am not doing it well enough. It can simply mean too, that there's an imbalance 
and I'm, I, the more I'm reading the studies about medication and things like that with the brain, the more I'm realizing either a, we've had this many people who've had this issue before, but we've been ignoring it or B more people are just more aware of the idea of there's an option. And so they're looking at taking advantage of some of those options we have. And we're not saying like over medication, don't feel anything, but just to give you enough so that when you do those mindfulness activities, they do create a sense of peace. They do help you feel like I have anxiety still. And I know that, but it's in a manageable three, four range rather than always at a nine, 10. One of the things we look at and we're dealing with trauma is this idea of window of tolerance too. And anxiety is one of those things that will close the window of tolerance and make it so we can't actually process the emotions in a healthy way. Mm -hmm. And so often when I start working with someone with trauma, I work with them and assess whether they need a medication evaluation because we want to open up the window of tolerance wide enough so that we can process the trauma. And so it can be a short-term solution and not necessarily a lifelong solution as far as that goes. But the window of tolerance, we can go, there's a lot more information we, we won't go into at this point, but is that is the point at which I can actually move rational thought into the emotion and start to process it rather than just live in the emotion. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah. Um, lots of people forget that the brain is an organ. Our pancreas uh, struggles. We call it diabetes and we take insulin. Usually people don't try to tell someone to wean themselves off of insulin or our don't heart. don't really need it. Yeah, or our heart starts to struggle. We call it heart disease and we take whatever medication you take for heart disease. So. <laughs> and, uh, blood pressure medication thank you yeah that's yes. <laughs> there's multiple also related to your anxiety but we won't go there right now yeah. right um the brain is an organ just like any other yeah and um sometimes we need medication to help our brain mm-hmm. yeah i think all in all it's about finding the balance right that's part of the whole idea that we're talking about in general but just the whole podcast as well is we're finding the balance in these kinds of discussions and finding the balance in, you know, people needing to find that for themselves and our balance, like my balance is not going to be Jennifer's balance or Taylor's balance. And it's about what Haley's balance is to her and how do I make it so that I am at my three, four range, which for me is what I've determined is the comfortable range, as opposed to always being at a heightened, like eight, nine, which I do actually get up there a lot and Jen and Taylor get my text messages about that. Usually, usually we love them. And we send them <laughs> back when we're at our Absolutely. I think one of the things that I'd like to end with is this is a big part of the idea of resilience is the ability to notice and manage the emotion, not mm-hmm. to not have it. Yeah, I agree. I think that's a, that's the difference between resilience and again, just dealing with it and surviving. Thanks for listening. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Please feel free to rate, subscribe, and review. And if you want to find us on social media, we're on Instagram and Facebook at Fate Resilience. We'd love to hear from you.